If you're enjoying Brave Not Perfect, there's another podcast I think you'll want to check out. We hear about trans people in the news all the time, but we almost never hear trans people telling their own stories. The Trans Lash Podcast with Amara Jones is changing that by creating a space that centers the voices of trans people in conversations about news, politics, and culture. It's hosted by Amara Jones, a Peabody and Emmy Award winner. She's also a Black trans woman and a journalist. And Amara understands that trans people telling their own stories and having a voice in the conversations that affect them will save trans lives. So if you're trans and looking for a news and culture show that centers you, or an ally who wants to learn more, check out the Trans Lash podcast. You could hear a new episode every other Thursday. Subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Hi, I'm Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break free from the cult of perfection to live bolder and ultimately happier lives. Today, we're talking about sisterhood because it's almost the day of the girl. And that means Girls Who Code's yearly sisterhood campaign is underway. It's all about taking time to celebrate the sisterhood in our own lives and to recommit to lifting each other up so we can all shine brighter. We've got some exciting virtual events planned with superstar Becky G, visual artist Reina Noriega, and so many other incredible women. To learn more about the sessions, just visit apple.co backslash GWC. We'll also include the link in our show notes. Plus, we're asking you to share your own story about the women in your life who supported you using the hashtag sisterhood story. So many women and girls have shared such inspiring stories, and it's such a joy to be part of this important conversation. To celebrate sisterhood and Brave Not Perfect, I'm having a conversation with the one and only Anne Friedman, and she knows a lot about sisterhood. Anne co-hosts the popular podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, with her close friend, Aminatu So, who she also recently wrote a book with. It's called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Anne has so many smart insights into sisterhood and friendship. And I'm so excited to share our conversation with you right now. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about your new book, Big Friendship and the Power of Sisterhood. So I wanted to start off by asking you a big question. What does friendship mean to you? Oh, I mean, truly the biggest of questions, right? (laughs) I Well, I think that there are different kinds of friendships, right? Um, There are definitely friendships of convenience or maybe short-term friendships, friendships of circumstance, um, people you might call friend in the Facebook sense but are not truly close to. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are um, what Aminatu and I call big friends, right? Like friends who are truly people who walk side by side with you on the path of life people who know you intimately, people who have seen you through some weird and like horrible ups and downs and, um, and are still there. Right. Uh, And I think that that sort of intimate knowledge and um, staying power, those are two things that really define the kind of close friendships that we wrote the book about. So I know you wrote big friendship with your friend Aminatu. What's it about? 
And what has that process been like? Well, the book is about our friendship, which just celebrated its 11-year anniversary. (laughs) So at this point, I think we can say a long-term friendship and um, some of the ups and downs that we have had. And that's sort of the narrative through line of the book and the story that holds it together. But we are also interested in the experience of friendship, you know, on a social level, on a cultural level. And so we talk to some other friends and some experts who have studied it to really try to get a stronger sense of how we stay close to the people who we identify as friends. And so the book is not just our story, which involves us becoming very close friends very quickly. And then, you know, having a period where we were not so close, like a a kind of estranged period, and then kind of finding our way back to each other. So that's our story. But we realize that a lot of those things that have happened to us have happened to others as well. And so there is a bigger perspective in the book beyond us, too. And what was it like? Do you mean what was it like to write it together? Yeah. I mean, I'm an author of a couple of books, and I've never written a book with somebody. So what was that like? Yeah. So the book is written in a we voice in a single narrative thread. We did not want to have someone's experience of reading the book feel like a she said, she said, where you're like, oh, I'm on Anne's side or I'm on Aminatu's side in this one. We really, we wanted it to reflect the work that we had done to kind of come to a shared understanding about some of the things that had happened in our friendship. And so we had this process where we would outline together the section we were working on usually and sort of discuss the points that we we wanted to hit, the main things. And then we would separate and write on our own, however many words we determined. And then we would come back together, read those sections aloud to each other, and then we would knit them together. We'd kind of take the best of what each of us had written. And then we would go through it together and massage it and then start outlining the next section. And we wrote the whole book that way. So it was a lot. It was a lot. Wow. Wow. And I always think about this, like working with a good friend, it's like exciting and rewarding, but it's also like a big step. And it sometimes like shifts friendship and it's a little scary, right? You all probably went through a lot of bravery. How did you kind of navigate this and come to that decision to work together, both like on the podcast and the book? Well, the podcast, which we started in 2014, felt less like a decision to work together at that point than a kind of fun side project we were doing. And we have a third collaborator in the podcast, so it doesn't feel like it's just the two of us. You know, it's a three-way endeavor and we are all equal decision makers in it. And we'd been doing that for, you know, four years, I think, before we decided to write this book. And so we really had Um, slowly gone from just friends to friends who kind of had a fun side project to friends and co-workers over a period of several years. It was a slow evolution. And I think we really had and have now a handle on that part of our collaboration. It is, like I said, having a third person in the mix really helps. You always have a tiebreaker. Like three Mm -hmm. people in charge is really kind of great, I got to (laughs) say. And then also if one person has something going on, you know, there are two other people to kind of collaborate and pick up the slack. There's a lot of, there's a lot of safety built into that. And writing the book was a lot more intense. You know, it was something we really wanted to do because we felt that when we were in this difficult period of our friendship, there were no resources for us. We did not see this story reflected anywhere. 
there are plenty of stories about friends finding each other and like really supporting each other through the hard times and like aren't your friends incredible and we go to brunch every week or whatever and a lot of affirmation about friendship and not a lot of frank discussion of what happens when it gets difficult and as I said earlier some friendships the kind of low stakes ones they don't get difficult because you just walk away if it stops working. But for a friendship that feels really central to who you are, the way that ours does, we really felt it was kind of important to talk about the ways that we muddled through what happened to us and to kind of be the story that we wished had existed in the world when things were hard. So that was the motivation to write the book. And it was a very different kind of collaboration than the podcast, one that was more intentional and also much, much more intense. And we are definitely still friends. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the mix of what we talk about and the time we spend together, the balance of that is not 100% just fun time as friends anymore. You know, we have a lot of shared work at this point. And I think we've had to get a lot more intentional about prioritizing the parts of our friendship that are pure friendship that are not related to any of the work we do together. And so, you know, a different kind of challenge than maybe we've had at previous points in our friendship. You know, it's interesting. My my husband has a venture fund with three of his really good friends. And so they had a lot at stake, right? You know, I watched them really work with a coach who was very intimately involved kind of in their relationship. What advice do you have for friends who are considering going into business together? Like, what have you learned? Well, like I said, I think for us, three was a really good number. Um, So I will say that in terms of not having it really tightly focused on the two of you with no tiebreaker for decisions. I wish we had been able to foresee how the podcast would become a business. Like it really was not something that occurred to us, which is a little bit different than people who intentionally um, start to work together. But I would say that the thing that makes it easy for us to continue to work together is a real shared value system. You know, we might have different ideas about how we handle conflict with people who we're working with or, you know, what we think is the priority in the short term versus the long term. But at the end of the day, we really do share many of the same ideals about why we do the work we do, what kinds of businesses we want to be in bed with or not. <laughs> you know, that's not to say we agree about these things all the time, but like on Honestly, if if I got sick tomorrow and Aminatu and Gina had to make all of the CYG decisions for the foreseeable, I could feel okay about that because we share these values. You know, there might be a minor thing that we disagreed on, but at the end of the day, I think that that kind of sense of we're in it for the same reason is is more important than anything else. And then I would also maybe, uh, if I could go back in time, have some conversations about work style and what everyone needs, you know, on a really practical level. Are you someone who hates meetings? Are you someone who likes to have everything in a spreadsheet? Are you someone who is just going to do something when you see it needs done? Or are you going to kind of twiddle your thumbs and wait for someone else to give you direction? You know, I mean, there are all these little things that are kind of the stuff of work style that like management consultants make a ton of money talking about that really apply to super small businesses too. And I think to the degree to which you can kind of be honest about your previous work experiences and what you're bringing to whatever you're starting, um, that would be helpful to know. So interesting because it's almost like the people sometimes that you're friends with are very different than the people that you would go into business with or right or collaborate on something with. And so it's really hard to navigate that when you start something as friends and it becomes something like call your girlfriend has, you know, almost like 
bigger than both of you, right? And that so many women and people kind of look forward to listening and learning from. Um, it's a real challenge. One of the things that you talk about in your book or you write about is this idea of the stretch. Mm. What does that mean? And what have been some pivotal moments in your friendship with Amina when you've had to stretch? Yeah, so the stretch is the metaphor that we came up with for the situations that all friendships go through that require one or both of you to really put in an effort to stay in the friendship. And sometimes that looks like um, one of you going through something like a really big life change, moving away, coming out, starting a family. (laughs) I don't know. There's like the whole list of everything that might deeply change your life. And whenever any one of you goes through a big change, that's going to affect the terms of your friendship. And so if you don't talk about it, there is this sense that you're just going to kind of either get through it or not, right? Like we often have a fatalistic way of thinking about these stretches in friendship. You know, either your friend understands how your life is different now and comes along for the ride or they don't. And I think what we're proposing in really identifying what a stretch is, is saying like, hey, uh, what if you could talk about this openly with your friend and say, I'm actually going to have some new needs of you in my life. And it's going to be different for me to show up for you as well. And can we talk about that? And, you know, for us, some things that might be a stretch for other friendships haven't presented as much of one. You know, I moved away from D.C., which is where Aminatu and I met. And transitioning our friendship to long distance actually didn't feel like that big of a stretch, even though I think we were both worried about it. What ended up happening is that later when other stuff happened in our lives, when I was going through a bunch of work upheaval and was also in this long distance romantic relationship and Aminatu was moving across the country for a new job and leveling up that way. And we both just kind of got sucked into and busy with stuff that was happening in our individual lives. Those were changes that were um, really requiring stretches of us that we didn't know how to talk about in real time. And so I think maybe with this vocabulary, if we had been able to articulate, huh, I'm going through something, the friendship is going to need to stretch to keep up. How can we be more explicit about what's going on? Um, I think that that really increases the chances of survival for a close friendship. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, it's it's so interesting how um, many of us are conflict avoiders, right? We've taught to kind of people please and to like just go along with it. And so we often in our relationships and our friendships kind of hold it in, right? You're frustrated with a friend. You just kind of wait it out until you get less frustrated. It's not often everybody's kind of first behavior to basically just confront them and to talk about it. So how does bravery and being brave in your relationships play into like the successfulness of like managing through the stretch. Oh, I love that you asked this because truly every worthwhile relationship requires bravery. Um, There have been so many points at which one or both of us felt like we were fully emotionally exposed, like naked on a plane (laughs) as we were trying to reach out to the other person and hoping that she would reciprocate. And I think especially when someone has let you down, which is inevitable in a close friendship, right? Like in every close relationship, we sometimes disappoint the people who we care about. And bravery is required to kind of say, I'm going to give this person another chance, or I'm going to put myself out there and be honest about how I experience this. And you're right about the natural inclination of people 
especially people who were socialized as women, to avoid conflict. And we cite at multiple points in the book the linguist Deborah Tannen's work about women's friendships in particular. And, you know, she talks about the ways that women's tendency to be less direct has a negative effect on their friendships. So women may be more likely to say something like, will you hand me my sweater? Or do you think it's chilly in here? As opposed to saying, will you turn up the heat (laughs) as a direct request? And I think, you know, um, these are things that we all have to learn how to do in a friendship instead of just kind of hinting around maybe the fact that we're feeling left behind by a friend or um, that something they said hurt us saying directly, when you said that, I felt this way. And I know that's some real therapy 101 stuff. But again, I don't think it's something that we're really taught we're going to have to rely on in friendships a lot. You know, that's the stuff that we're more taught to think about as important in romantic relationships. You know, when you think about those I feel statements, (laughs) and I think that some of our book is really just saying like, hey, like, please confront the fact that you're going to have to rely on some of those skills and some of that bravery in your friendships as well. I love that because I do think that so many of us, I mean, my, my partner and I have definitely been to couples counseling <laughs> more than once, you know, and we know that like when we're struggling in our relationship, we got to go get help. Mm-hmm. And there isn't, you know, society accepts or supports that, but it's not the same for friendships. And it was interesting. I was listening to David Brooks speak yesterday and he said, you know, in this moment, one of the most important things that you can do is actually invest in your friendships. And you know, if we want to maintain the societal fabric of our communities, friendships are often at the center of that. But oftentimes we're just not taught how to invest in our friendships. And I think that's why your book is going to be so important. What's something that you learned about doing that, about kind of nurturing and fostering your friendship that may have surprised you? Uh, How many hours do you have? Like truly? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think that through the process of what we have gone through in our friendship, we have really both learned a lot about ourselves as individuals, like probably very different things that we are not only bringing to bear on our friendship, but bringing to bear on our other relationships. And, you know, one great example of that for me is I'm someone who feels a pressure to always kind of have a response, to always have an answer to everything. And so if something's happening in front of me and I actually don't know what I think about it yet or don't have an immediate response, it's really, really hard for me. I just want to start talking or saying random stuff, you know, and fill the void as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm going to reflect on that and I would love to talk about it in a week or something. And I know that, again, is some therapy 101 stuff, but that is a skill I learned through my friendships, not through my family or my romantic relationships that... I'm a kind of person who needs that. Um, Slow emotional processor is maybe the term. And so I think that I give that example because it's less about like, what does a friendship need or what do my friendships need? And it's more about me as a person with intimate, important relationships, you know, and thinking about friendship as, you know, different from a romantic partner. But when you think about like maintaining intimacy, a lot of that is pretty similar, especially, you know, for the two of us as women who really prioritize communication. And so I've learned a lot about my own communication styles and my own needs and have brought that to other friendships, have brought that to other relationships, have brought that to my relationship with myself. And I think that really investing in trying to figure out why some aspects of a friendship aren't working, those are the answers that start to come up. You know, like the rewards are really, really tangible, even though the work is also really hard. Yeah. One of the things I love is this term the two of you coined called shine theory. 
And it's basically the right, I don't shine if you don't shine. And you have this real commitment to lifting each other up. And a lot of women who, you know, are socialized to grow up to be taught to like compete with each other and compare ourselves to one another. How did you unlearn that? And how has that showed up in your life? Yeah, so for us, you know, shine theory is something that we talk about. And I don't think that like every belief is something that you can just profess verbally and then it's somehow a part of who you are. You know, you have to practice it as well. But for me, having a vocabulary for it and being able to talk about it is a real reminder for me to kind of recenter myself on collaboration over competition because we all have felt, you know, that sense of, what does she have that I don't have? Or that feeling of why her? (laughs) Um, And shine theory does not say don't ever have those feelings. But what it does say is, you know, like maybe take a beat and ask yourself whether you could redirect that energy somewhere else. And, you know, so in the book, we give a lot of different examples of what that means. Sometimes it means sharing information with other people. Sometimes it means literally amplifying them and kind of repeating their ideas to people who want to hear from them. Sometimes it means connecting them with an offer that or an opportunity that you are not that interested in. And I think in general for us, it is a way of orienting yourself around helping your friends get where they want to be or be their best selves. And there's a reason it's in a book about friendship and not in a book about work, because we really feel like it's rooted in this long-term investment in each other. And so, you know, you can definitely prioritize collaboration over competition when you're talking about someone who's merely a colleague and not a friend. But where this really comes to bear and really bears fruit in your life is if you think about it as a long-term effort with friends to support each other over the many years you hope to be in each other's lives. Yeah, it's such a great way to like practice that in your friendships because these are the the folks that you love the most, that you care the most, that you've invested in. But sometimes it's in our friendships that we are the most competitive, right? We are the least kind, ironically. Right. Um, And I do think uh, asking yourself, like, am I lifting my friend up today? Am I tweeting or sharing something about she did? Am I making an introduction? Am I being more sensitive than I normally am? I think is actually quite, you know, a a great thing to practice and a great thing to teach girls, right, to do at a young age. Because I think the way we learn how to be with each other when we're little really plays out in how we treat each other when we're older. Right. And I think that that's one reason why, I mean, many of us were raised with more of an attitude about competition rather than collaboration. And it is something that you can practice and actively be more conscientious about how you want to be as an adult in the world, even if you weren't lucky enough to be taught this as a, as a child. So can I ask you something like, did this show up for the two of you as partners I've seen when women who are co-founders together or are building something together, they're very intentional about like, we will only speak on a panel if both of us speak on the panel. We'll only be, you know, showcasing this article if both of us are showcasing an article. And I've seen breakups happen, right, amongst friends, amongst business partners when they're not conscious of this. Did this play out for the both of you as Call Your Girlfriend was getting to be more, you know, successful and both of your own profiles were being lifted? You know, that in particular has not been an issue related to Call Your Girlfriend. I mean, I will say one thing that happened with Shine Theory is that I wrote an article about it in 2013 and 
for many years after several times a week, people would credit me with the idea and not credit Aminatu, even though she is mentioned as the person who co-coined this in the article. And, you know, and so taking a corrective stance about that has been something that I have really tried to do proactively. But when it comes to things like who gets what opportunity, I really think that a certain degree of transparency is the only thing that has really saved us, you know, trusting that when the other one says, I don't care if you do that, totally fine, that she's telling the truth and also feeling fully empowered to be expressed about, oh, actually, it really kind of bothers me the thought of you doing that without me and we need to do it together. You know, and some of that we now do proactively, you know, me describing the process of how we wrote this book was an intentional choice so that we wouldn't feel like, you know, at this point now when we're talking about it, someone would be like, well, I love the Aminatu parts about this, but, you know, I didn't love Anne's parts about, you know, there's no way to separate us. And we kind of, we made an intentional choice about that. And so while we will maybe separately talk about the book, like I'm excited by the idea of her talking about our project on a different podcast without me present. Um, The fundamental work is just such a tight collaboration that there's absolutely no way to separate it. And so some of it is about talking about these things as they happen in real time. And some of it is about planning for it in the future, where we both knew that we would maybe get our feelings hurt about having parts of the book singled out. And so we solved for it in our process. I love that. That's such a great lesson. So the both of you now have a long distance friendship, right? And with the realities of Corona, a lot of people are just grappling with how to maintain and strengthen their friendship. You know, I was reading this article and it's been so true for me. It's sometimes even harder at this moment because today I might be feeling anxious, but my best friend is in a really great mood, right? And I don't want to call her up because I don't want to bring her down. Or she may feel like she's talking to me and I'm at a different place. And when you can touch each other and hug each other and just see each other, you kind of know where one another's coming from. And that's a lot harder on a Zoom call. So, you know, what advice do you have for navigating and fostering these friendships from afar? You know, one of the most challenging things about physical distance is that you cannot read those those cues that you might see on a friend's face or in their body language. And you're totally right about that. And so the challenge of this moment, I think, is also a real opportunity in terms of the long-term health of your friendship, which is that you have to be super explicit about what you have the capacity for, what you are able to bring to the friendship at that moment. You know, your example of you feeling kind of blah and your friend having a pretty up day you know you could say to your friend listen I'm having a blah day but I would love to just hear you talk about what's going right for you for like five minutes (laughs) let's just let's do it on the phone because I can't handle being on zoom again but like let's do it and I just want you to know where I'm at today and your friend being like great happy to bring a little bit of sunshine into your day and I'll tell you where I'm at and we can just get off the phone in five minutes. Like that kind of openness, I think really serves you in the future because, you know, it's true that we get a lot of information from our friends' faces and body language, but, you know, we also get a lot of misinformation and this ability to be a little bit more explicit about what we're going through and what we need is a lifelong friendship skill that we can be all working on right now out of necessity, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've talked to people I haven't talked to in years and I think a lot of people are having that experience. And I think because we're so desperate and lonely and scared and, and we have time, right? It's all of these things. Do you think that that's a moment or do you think we'll be like, wow, I really loved talking to 
my friend Kendra that I haven't spoken to in 10 years, right? Like I'm going to make it a commitment or a habit to basically check in once a month. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I do think that the truth is that we've always had these tools at our disposal, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could have always been calling your friend Kendra and the priorities that we're going to have to place on those friendships will change, right? Right now, it might be a lot easier to kind of keep that weekly catch-up date. And once we're all back out in the world, that might not be the case. But I think the question of like, when everything else disappears, what really matters? And the answer being that we are really feeling called to connect with friends should, in the best case scenario, reshuffle our priorities going forward, you know, and kind of say like, actually, it's okay for me to miss this in-person work thing this time to call someone and catch up on the phone long distance, which is a calculus that most of us, frankly, wouldn't make outside of this scenario, right? Right. Um, And really thinking hard about what we care about. You know, in the book, we mentioned that there's a nurse in Australia named Bronnie Ware, who counseled people in the last few months of their lives. And one of the top five regrets of the dying is always, I didn't stay in touch with my friends. Mm -hmm. And so in this moment where we're all feeling, as you said, threatened and destabilized and scared the fact that we are all wanting to connect to our friends to me that feels related to the same impulse of when we are at the end of our lives who do we want there and so I think it's actually a really valuable lesson in okay how can this be a priority now so that you know we're not trying to reconnect after a 20-year absence some point down the future so what about new friends versus old friends I am one of those people who have the same 10 good friends and I've had them for a decade. And if I was to be honest Uh with myself, I kind of have like a no new friend rule, right? And then I have friends who are quite the opposite and they basically have a one new friend a year rule. Like they're constantly actually looking to make new relationships. Where are you? Hmm. I mean, I think that a lot of this depends on time of life. And um, one thing that both Aminatu and I have noticed is that we tend to make new friends during or after a period of a significant life change, sometimes because your circumstances have changed in a way that, you know, I don't know, you get divorced or you move or you start a new job and suddenly new people are both in your life and also some old people don't feel like they fit in the same way. So change can always precipitate that. And we're definitely, we're definitely in a change. Um, And for me, I think that there is something really valuable about the period of making a new friend where I learn about myself in a new friendship in ways that are really different, but perhaps just as revealing as when I'm reconnecting with an old friend. You know, because the process of forming a friendship is all about telling your story to someone who has not heard it before. And, you know, your story of who you are, Rashma, right now is really different than it was when you met your friends from 25 years ago. Sometimes it can feel really good to sort of say, oh, actually, like I get to pick and choose what's important to the person I am now and share that with a new friend. And that can be really revelatory. And so, I don't know. Like for me, I have um, a newish friend who I met. I met through a mutual friend, like maybe January-ish. I think. God, what is time? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think. I think around January we we had like a small group dinner because we have a friend in common, and we really just connected. And I, I think I hung out with her one on one maybe once or maybe twice before we all went into confinement and. She's someone who I've kind of kept up with, with just like little audio messages. And um, 
and weirdly, it's been an okay time to make a new friend, you know, like it's, it's because it's sort of founded in this moment right before we, we all went into our separate places. And I've also had that experience of reconnecting with people who have been acquaintances for a while. But I don't know, I think that this is a to each their own. But I do think that there is power and value in making new friends at all ages, you know, if you if you have the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think it's my one of my big reveals in this moment. Um, is that that was a bad rule. <laughs> and I was actually really depriving myself of exactly what you're saying. I also think it's, so it's funny. It's like, I'm the friend that you call when you want like real advice. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not the friend that you call when you're just, you want sympathy. Like, and I'm the least anxious out of all of my good friends. And so in many times in this moment, I'm, it, 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 it's interesting right? Kind of where I sit in our friendship circle. And I do think that I'm realizing that the thing when I am in the last moments of my life, I would regret is not having a deeper investment in my friendships and meeting new different people because I love people and I love learning and I love engaging. And I think this is a great time for your book. And I think it's a great time to think about the role of friendships and how important they are to us and how complicated they are. Um, Last question, you know, what was your biggest surprise that you discovered while writing this book? You know, I've written a couple books and oftentimes when I finished the book, I learned something that I just didn't expect to learn or was in contradiction to something I like deeply, a belief I deeply held. Did that happen for you? I don't know if there was one statistic or one thing that was really shocking, but I I would say the most revelatory thing was because of the way we wrote this in, in one narrative, we really had to talk about things that had happened between us and kind of come to an agreement, maybe not a hundred percent because we still have, you know, points of divergence that we put in the book, but come to an agreement about what that incident had meant for our friendship. Or when we talk about having had a period of estrangement, really having to put into words what precipitated that. And I know that sounds like a little bit 101 and like, yeah, you wrote a book. Yeah. So the revelation was you wrote a book, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but, but I do think that like, it, it has made me think about how, what if I had tried to go through this process with everyone in my life? Like what if I thought about moments of, emotional distance or the greatest moments of joy that had really bonded us for life. And I had to kind of compare those notes with a person I cared about. What would that reveal? You know, it's kind of that eternal question of what is your experience and what is actually a shared experience in the world? And Mm -hmm. this book for me in these very specific ways with my friendship with Aminatu made me see what parts of the experience were just kind of in my head or my emotions and which things really were shared. And that was just so interesting. (laughs) It really is like, you know, it's so revelatory. It's not the same thing as saying like, you know, guess what? I heard this statistic about how most people miss their friends when they're dying or whatever. That that stuff is interesting, but this is what felt really revelatory. The fact that certain things I felt really were shared experiences and those are what forged us in this long-term friendship. And other things were just my meaning that I made of something that happened. And that kind of knowledge about a specific relationship has really reverberated to other areas of my life and made me hungry for those kinds of frank conversations um, elsewhere. It's powerful, right? It's like, what are the stories we tell ourselves 
I definitely have a story I told myself about my relationship with my mother. And somebody pointed this out and said, what if this was the truth? Mm. Like, and then you literally live a narrative based on what you think the relationship happened or why the relationship broke down. And if you were to actually have the courage to have the conversation with the person, you might actually find that the story you've been telling yourself is wrong. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. The biggest revelations for me were about places where the story was wrong or and sometimes where the story was right, you know, like feeling yeah. like, oh, wow, it can feel really affirming to be like, yeah. that's how my mother crazy. experienced that too. Exactly. Right. right. And I, I think our greatest hope is that people who read this book are not like these two women are so fascinating, cool story, but that people read this book and think, oh, like, I wonder how it would go down if I tried to talk more explicitly about this thing that happened with a friend of mine. And we could try to find what is shared and what is what is different about our experience experiences of that moment. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of time right now. It seems to mend <laughs> and fix and have those honest, honest, authentic conversations. So how can listeners follow you and support your work? Everything is at bigfriendship.com. They can find all the places to order the book and nice things that people have said about the book and places to follow Aminatu and me individually. Um, it's all there at bigfriendship.com. Well, you and Aminatu have given the, the world and, and people such a gift with your podcast in this book. So uh, I'm very grateful to you, to both of you for that. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Anne, and I hope you stay safe. You too. Thank you so much, Reshma. That was Anne Friedman co-author of the new book, Big Friendship. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. If you enjoyed my conversation with Anne, I'd so appreciate it if you shared it with someone in your sisterhood. And make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Brave Not Perfect comes out every other Tuesday. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone co-produced this episode and of course, we couldn't make Brave Not Perfect without unwavering support from Deborah Singer and Rush Sajani.